When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Ancient World Bloodline. Episode B40, Uranus. His earliest memory was probably the procession. It was all pretty overwhelming. The flowers decorating every home, the incense pouring from the temple, and the anxious crowds filling the streets. Then word finally arrived that the party was nearing the city. The procession began with the Praetorians, the elite corps of Roman soldiers who protected the imperial family. Each man wore boots, trousers, and a long-sleeved tunic, off-white and decorated with bands of embroidery, under a coat of protective scale armor. Crested helmets topped their heads, long spatha swords hung at their hips, and their oval shields were emblazoned with the image of a scorpion. As they marched past, rank upon rank, the crowd began to erupt into cheers and applause. Behind the Praetorians came the officials, magistrates, senators, and other notables. Next came the royal retinue, a decorative army of slaves and attendants, there to meet any need or serve any whim of their masters. In the midst of it all, borne on a litter, was the central figure of the procession, Upon reaching the temple, the litter halted, and a graceful young woman emerged. Her dark hair was arranged in finger-length waves, her eyes were sharp, and her bearing proud and elegant. This was the empress, his cousin, and the most powerful woman in the known world. Her name was Julia Domna of Rome. Standing with his family before the temple of Ela Gabal, the four-year-old Uranius Antoninus must have been amazed. Even more exciting may have been the sight of Julius' two sons, young boys almost exactly his same age, named Caracalla and Geta. Picturing them as they were that day, adorable curly-haired tykes likely chafing at the formality, it's hard to imagine the monsters they'd later become. But of course, way back in 194, there wasn't a cloud on the Severan horizon. By 233, Uranius Antoninus was 43 years old, and despite a labyrinth of twists and turns, his family still held power. 
For most of his life, Uranius had no formal role. Aside from being the grandson of the brother of the father of Julia Domna. But since the death of Elagabalus in 222, Uranius had served as high priest of Elagabal in Emesa, while his cousin, Severus Alexander, ruled in Rome. Which meant, over the past decade, Uranius had a front row seat for the birth of Ardashir's Persia. How to explain the impact of the Sassanids on the cities of the Roman Near East? In terms of destabilization, it probably ranks somewhere between a Trump presidency and a Bronze Age collapse. You know, somewhere in there. And resonantly, after thousands of years of human history, we find ourselves right back along the Euphrates. For centuries now, certainly since the Romans came east, the Euphrates had remained a mostly stable frontier. It had served that role many times in the past, between the Egyptians and Mitanni, or the Hittites and the Assyrians, just to name a few. But even back then, it was never intensely fortified. The Euphrates was always less a physical barrier than a tacit agreement, a kind of shared mental construct. You stay on your side, and I'll stay on mine, or you and I, we're likely going to have trouble. As predicted, the trouble started when folks stopped respecting the frontier. You could blame Volagasis IV for invading Syria, or Lucius Verus for taking Nisibis, or Septimius Severus for provincializing Osrowini. But either way, once you crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, the logical result was more conflict and instability. Now, the system was resilient. It could absorb a Trajan, or an Avidius Cassius, or even, God help us, a feral Caracalla. But introduce an Ardashir and the whole thing goes hyperbolic. Which meant a region that had spent centuries benefiting from the trade and cultures of both Rome and Parthia was forced to adapt to a whole new situation. Take Emesa, for example. The Emesenes had hitched their horse to the Roman cart back in the days of Pompey the Great and never really looked back. Rome had nurtured them, protected them, and eventually adopted both their leading family and their god. Meanwhile, the Parthians, even at their most aggressive, had spent their fury on Armenia and Mesopotamia, leaving central Syria mainly secure and unthreatened. But Ardashir wasn't playing the old game. Sure, he poured troops into Mesopotamia, but he also laid siege to Roman garrisons along the Euphrates and sent raiding parties into Cappadocia and Syria. It took the emperor coming east with a massive army to break the sieges, repel the raiders, and compel the Sassanids to regroup east of the Tigris. Having succeeded in provoking a Roman response, Ardashir preferred to engage them on Persian territory. When elephants fight, the grass gets trampled, and Syria was an extremely nervous lawn. But that didn't mean the cities would shirk their duty. Emesa, 
and Uranius had played their part by hosting Alexander's legions earlier that spring. A column of soldiers thousand strong had briefly encamped near Emesa, the southern prong of an invasion of Ardashir's Persia. As Emesa's leading citizen, Uranius had greeted the legates, supplied the troops, and prayed to Elagabal for an easy victory. Then the legions had marched off under the rising sun, across the open desert toward Palmyra. It was easy to picture the journey, a week or so at an army's pace to cross the hundred miles, and for all that time little respite from the burning sun, the hot dry wind, and the monotony of the landscape. But at the end, as a later traveler remarked, we come gradually to a scene of enchantment. And though we have come expressly to see the scene, it breaks upon us as a surprise. Dark feathered palms stand in stark relief to bright marble colonnades. Majestic temples provide a backdrop for caravans of exotic goods. And even before you reach the Emesene Gate, twin to the Palmyrene Gate back in Emesa, the city's beauty and prosperity are obvious. Though Emesa had been allied with Rome for much longer, Palmyra was infinitely more ancient. Under its pre-Greek name of Tadmor, which, like Palmyra, comes from the word for date palm, it appears in the records of the Assyrians and Mariotes back in the second millennium BC. At the time, in fact, for most of its existence, it wasn't known as a city, but as an oasis. There's nothing more valuable in the middle of a desert than a dependable water supply, and Palmyra's Efka Spring allowed men, crops, and animals to thrive. Over the centuries, various tribes called Palmyra their home, at least in a transient sense. Polybius records a Palmyrene sheikh named Zabdabel fighting for the Seleucids in the 217 BC Battle of Raphia. But the first link in the chain to the modern city came in the mid-2nd century BC, when a number of tribes decided to settle down. The original 30 or so sub-tribes of mixed Arabic, Aramaic, and Amorite descent, gradually resolved themselves into four main tribal groups. There were the Mazen, Arabic for goat men, and the Aramaic Komare, Batabol, and Amleki. And whether they brought them along or otherwise, the tribes were soon linked to most of Palmyra's main gods. The Mazen with Balshamin, the Komare with Aglabol Malakbel, and the Batabol with Arsu and Atargetus. As historian Pat Southern notes, the unifying force that bound them together was the worship of the chief god Bel, often called Bel Marduk, the supreme god of ancient Babylon. So we start with a few tribes, a few gods, and a convenient watering hole possibly even a rudimentary village. But before long, the oasis became a popular trading station. 
Sometime in the late 2nd century BC, Palmyra got its first monumental architecture in the form of tower tombs erected by wealthy merchants. But a minor incident several decades later hints that most of its wealth was still portable. First contact with the Romans came in 41 BC, and I guess it could have gone worse. An ambitious general attacked Palmyra looking for riches and plunder. But on his approach, the vigilant Palmyrenes collected their goods, mounted their camels, and rode hard for the Euphrates. From the relative safety of the opposite bank, they fired arrows to discourage pursuit. The Roman commander, a man named, oh, let's see here, Mark Antony, soon gave up and went off to join Cleopatra in Tarsus. The next Roman interaction was, fortunately, more diplomatic. In 18 AD, Mark Antony's grandson, Germanicus, came calling during the course of his eastern imperium. His visit spurred construction of Palmyra's most famous building, the magnificent Temple of Bel. The temple was built atop the remains of a much older structure, on a mound holding evidence of thousands of years of human occupation. Like most eastern temples, the Temple of Bel was defined by a massive enclosure called a tenemos. As historian Warwick Ball notes, in the Greco-Roman West, a temple needed only to be large enough to house the image of the god as well as some associated priestly functions. In the East, however, participation by the public was as important as the image. Virtually all Semitic religions demanded that the entire community gather together on an appointed day for a communal worship at the main city temple, a ritual that goes back to ancient Mesopotamia. The sanctuary inside the Tenemos was considered the god's home. In the Temple of Bel, it was placed roughly in the center. As Richard Stoneman describes, the house of the god is entered by a central monumental gateway, freestanding and almost Egyptian in style. Within, to the left and right, stand symmetrical roofed shrines, one perhaps for the permanent statue of the god, the other for its portative replica used for processions. Among the temple's many embellishments were bas-relief carvings of the seven planetary deities, surrounded by the signs of the zodiac, and of a procession of camels and veiled women. Shortly after Germanicus's visit, a local legate also set up statues of Tiberius, Drusus, and Germanicus. The question of exactly when Palmyra became Roman is the topic of frequent debate. Most scholars believe the foundations were laid at the time of Germanicus's visit. In practical terms, this meant paying Roman taxes, hosting a Roman garrison, and supplying auxiliary troops as needed in times of war or crisis. In parallel, by the mid-first century, Palmyra adopted the institutions of a Hellenistic polis. 
This included a council of nobles, a people's assembly, chief magistrates called archons, or dumviri in Latin, financial leaders called syndicoi, military generals or strategoi, and religious leaders known as symposiarchs. The title of Symposiarch, or Master of Dining, gives some insight into Palmyrene religion. Similar to the Nabataeans, worship centered on a sacred meal, often preceded by a ritual cleansing bath. According to historian Richard Stoneman, the meals of the cult of Baal Shamin also involve sacred wine, in a ceremony similar to the Christian Eucharist. Rituals were meant to celebrate one's ancestors as well as worship the god, who was viewed, in Stoneman's words, as an honored guest, not a pampered object of wonder. It kind of goes without saying, though I'm going to say it anyway, that this low-key communal dinner party type service was worlds away from the high-energy musical dance fest that was worship of Ela Gabal. And even stranger was that Ela Gabal was the normal one. Syria was widely known for its many ecstatic cults, and in this area it was the Palmyrenes who danced to their own drum, by not dancing and also not drumming. In another respect, they were more in line with their Syrian contemporaries. The Palmyrenes often depicted their gods in Roman military dress symbolizing the power of the god to protect those under his care. Trade and prosperity continued to grow during the second half of the first century. Like Emesa, Palmyra provided thousands of archers to fight for Vespasian in Judea. And it was around this time the city was described by the naturalist Pliny the Elder. He called it a city with an outstanding location, a rich land, and pleasant springs. A vast sand desert surrounds its fields everywhere, and nature has, as it were, isolated it from other lands, so that it has preserved its own fortune between the two greatest empires of the Romans and the Parthians. Under Trajan, Palmyrene archers first served in the Roman military. His successor, Hadrian, named Palmyra a free city and raised it to the rank of metropolis. Hadrian's visit to Palmyra around 130 AD prompted construction of another famous monument, the Temple of the Ancient Canaanite Sky God, Baal Shamin, known to the Palmyrenes as the Lord of Heaven. Much like the earlier Temple of Bel, the Temple of Baal Shamin fused Roman and Syrian elements. It also included a dedication to its builder, a Palmyrene official named Male Agrippa, who, being secretary for a second time when the divine Hadrian came here, gave oil to the citizens and to the troops and to the strangers that came along with him taking care of their encampment. By the mid-2nd century, Palmyra reached the height of its prosperity, which is probably a convenient time to discuss Palmyrene trade. 
While the neighboring Nabataeans focused on the South Arabia spice trade, the Palmyrenes focused on the trade in Chinese silk. Beginning its journey in the city of Chang'an, the silk made its way over mountain, steppe, and desert to the oasis city of Kashgar, at the time a satellite kingdom of the powerful Kushan Empire. From there it traveled, via the cryptic-sounding stone tower, to the old Bactrian fortress city of Bactra. There the route split, with one branch heading south toward the Indian coast, and the other continuing west through Herat and Merv, before ending at Seleucia on the Tigris. The Indian route ended up with ships that carried the silk on to Cherax. These trade routes are reflected in Palmyrene funeral reliefs, which showed not only camels, but also ships. And however much they were involved up until this point, from Cherax or Seleucia, it was a purely Palmyrene affair. Both cities had established Palmyrene trade colonies, as did every major city all along the Euphrates. Once a shipment came in, the Palmyrenes would get it to the river, sail it up north, either to Hit or Dura Europos, then load it onto a caravan bound for Palmyra. Caravans might be funded by individuals, by groups, or even by the city as a whole. Either way, according to historian Pat Southern, the central figure was the Cenodiarch. These were typically wealthy landowning sheikhs of one of Palmyra's major tribes, who organized caravans, arranged financial backing, provided pack animals, and employed tribal warriors to guide and protect the caravans. In exchange, the Cenodiarchs were rewarded with social and political prestige, along with a fee for their service and a share of the profits. So the wealth flowed in, the merchants grew rich, and the city reflected their prosperity. The temples of Bel and Baal Shamin were joined by temples to Nebo, the scribe of the gods, and to Alat, the Arabic goddess who entered the Quran as one of the daughters of Allah. This era also saw the construction of a theater, a nymphaeum, and a four-way arch or tetrapylon. The main colonnade was also embellished, with inscriptions and statues of Palmyra's leading citizens. According to historian Warwick Ball, the colonnade served two main functions. It marked a sacred processional way leading to the Temple of Bell, and also served as a decorative facade for the rows of shops behind it. Either the central portion or the flanking side streets were likely covered for shade. The arrangement created a covered bazaar, the eastern counterpart of the Forum or Agora. By this time, the city's population was over a 100,000. And the interesting thing is, we can get a real sense of what the Palmyrenes looked like, or at least how they liked to be portrayed. What I'm talking about are the Palmyrene reliefs, most carved using local limestone, of nobles, magistrates, priests, synodiarchs, and other wealthy citizens. 
Some were set along the back wall of ritual banquet rooms, while others were placed in tower tombs or other funeral sites. There's debate as to whether the figures portrayed are meant to be accurate or idealized. But either way, there's no denying their artistry or their impact. As historian Richard Stoneman notes, they stare out at you with an unsettling self-assurance, almost an arrogance. I've been lucky enough to see a number up close, and they definitely make a powerful impression. They reflect a confidence that things were good and only going to get better. The first signs of trouble came in 161 AD, with the death of Antoninus Pius and the Parthian invasion of Armenia. While the ensuing conflict between Rome and Parthia was fairly short and sharp, Volagasis IV apparently held a grudge. And since he also held Cherax, and Avidius Cassius had destroyed Seleucia, the Palmyrenes saw their trade take a major hit. The economic downturn led to an upswing in violent crime and disorder. This was reflected in the creation of two new Palmyrene officials, a Strategos of the Nomads, to deter desert bandits, and a strategos of the peace to manage civic unrest. Perversely, considering their diminished income, the Palmyrenes took on increased responsibilities. According to historian Benjamin Isaac, from 165 onward, Roman control of the eastern desert was exercised via Palmyra with a permanent occupation of key sites by regular military units organized to conform to Roman standards. Prior to this, a Palmyrene garrison had been stationed at Dura Europos, during periods of both Roman and Parthian occupation. Now all territories, from Palmyra to the Euphrates, were under Palmyrene control. In the 190s, the Severans came to power, and soon after that came East. For Palmyra, benefits like colonial status and a monumental arch came at the price of greater conflict and more uncertainty. But they also cemented Palmyra's role as wardens of the Eastern Desert. In particular, Caracalla's reign saw the formation of the 20th Palmyrene Cohort, with camel-riding dromedarii attached to centuries of Roman infantry. The unit was based at Doriaropos and may have been commanded by Palmyrene officers. Severus had granted citizenship to a few of Palmyra's key families, who'd taken the name Septimius in his honor. After the Edict of Caracalla, when all imperial subjects became citizens of Rome, some Palmyrenes took the name Julius Aurelius. The Aurelius was in honor of Caracalla's actual name, Marcus Aurelius Severus Antoninus Augustus. The Julius was in honor of Julia Domna. In order to get things back on track, the Palmyrenes needed one of two things. 
either a reduction in Roman Parthian hostilities, or at the very least, a Parthian king who was open to Palmyrene trade. What they got instead were major conflicts under Caracalla and Macrinus. Then, insult to injury, the problematic Parthians were overthrown by the completely hostile Sassanids. As they took first Cherax in 223, then Asuristan and Arbiastan in 227, Palmyrene colonies on the southern Euphrates were completely dismantled and ejected. And Palmyrenes were hardly the only refugees. Parthian remnants, Arab tribes, and numerous others flowed west. And for many, the first Roman city they encountered was Palmyra. Proof that the strain was beginning to show was highlighted by the city's change in governance. When Alexander's legions arrived in Palmyra, they were met by its senior official, a strategos named Julius Aurelius Zenobius Sabdilla. The fact that a general was now in charge was a pretty telling sign. But being somewhat overextended themselves, the Romans had little problem with military strongmen, as long as they stayed completely loyal to Rome. For Uranius and Emissa, there was little to do but wait for news of the Roman victory. In the meantime, he'd continue to officiate in the temple of Elagabal and teach his future successor its sacred mysteries. Because by 233, Uranius had an eight-year-old son named Lucius Julius Aurelius Sulpicius Severus Uranius Antoninus. In place of that mouthful, Uranius likely just called his son Lucius though he'd later come to be known as Samsigarimus. By the spring of 234 AD, news had finally arrived, but there were very different reports from different sources. From Antioch came word of a crushing victory over a massive Persian army. Ardashir was beaten, the empire saved, and the emperor planned to celebrate a triumph. An amazing triumph, a huge triumph, maybe the biggest triumph ever. Which was excellent news, if you ignored reports coming in from the east and south. These brought word of an army encircled and killed to a man by the Persians. And, even more disturbing, of a young Roman emperor paralyzed by fear, who'd failed both his legions and his empire. Uranius may have preferred to ignore this fake news and trust in the account of Alexander. But doing so had one inescapable consequence. If the Romans had triumphed, the army'd survived, and if the army'd survived, it'd soon be returning, through Palmyra and Emesa, back to Antioch. And if they didn't return... Well, better not to contemplate all the grim ramifications of that reality. When I picture Uranius, he's looking east at sunrise, sure, to greet the sun god Elagabal, 
but also scanning the horizon for the line of soldiers that'd confirm his cousin's victory. 